Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today is Margaret Bradham Thornton from Charleston. And she's on the show for several reasons. One is that she edited the notebooks of Tennessee Williams. And she has written a novel entitled Charleston, in which some reviewers, and I would have to agree, think that the characters are not the protagonists, but the city itself. And so, Margaret, welcome to the journal. Oh, thank you so much. Let's talk about how you got from Charleston, where you grew up, to New York, Tennessee Williams, and back to Charleston, where you have restored the Pineapple Gate House. You know, I grew up in Charleston. Um, I went to Princeton. And while this wasn't that linear, I was um, a great student of Henry James, and I fell in love with Isabel Archer and the portrait of a lady. And I remember just being thrilled by the idea of a life where you could continue to explore the world, which is pretty much what she did. After Princeton, I was an English major, but I decided I did not want to go to graduate school. And at the time, jobs at Goldman Sachs and investment banking on Wall Street were sort of challenging jobs to get. And I think I've always been susceptible to a dare. So I thought, well, I'll try for that. Um, And I got a job. I worked in mergers. And when I was in New York, I met a man who later became my husband. We went out one night with an older friend of his, whose name was also John. He asked me what I majored in. It was English. And we immediately started having a very lively discussion about Henry James because he wasn't a big fan of Isabel Archer, and I was. So we spent the whole evening arguing our lively discussion about that novel. From that point on, whenever I saw him, we would always talk about books. It turns out that the man that I was having this lively discussion with was a man named John Eastman, and he was a very highly regarded lawyer who was Paul McCartney, the Beatles' brother-in-law. And John had won the famous case in London that gave artists the right to their music. And that was just a landmark case. Before that, all these amazing and talented artists did not have the rights to their music. The music company did. So at the end of their life, they were poor, and the music companies were very rich. Had I known I had been arguing with him, I would have not opened my mouth because he was <laughs> you know, so successful and so famous. A number of years later, he, he was Tennessee Williams' lawyer. And so when I, I left working at Goldman Sachs and I'd had our first two children, he asked me if I wanted to read Tennessee Williams' diaries. And I said, sure. They arrived, and we were living in London, in a complete mess. They were photocopied pages, about 14 inches thick of all the journals. Tennessee was not the most organized person in the world, brilliant as he was. He would write in one, and they were sort of like the little blue books that we uh, took exams in. Oh, okay. Yeah, our little, little notebooks that he would buy at the dime stores. Um, in fact, I found some later on that no one even knew were, were his journals because of how sort of simple the little flip-top notebooks were. But he would write in one, lose it, write in another, find the one he lost and write in that. Some, oh, sometimes he wouldn't date them. That in itself, whether it's a dime store, a little spiral, or a blue book, it was not like I was thinking about the Adams family have these fancy diaries and what have you. This was just a real casual thing. Yes, and he wrote in pencil most of the time. Oh, gosh. I know, which made deciphering them sometimes hard. I sort of liked that because there was nothing precious for him about them, but they were his companions, and he took them everywhere he went. So it just shows, I think, as a playwright, the need to speak, and he always wrote on whatever he had. I even found journal entries in, in books that he that were part of his library. So he wrote on whatever surface he had. This sounds like not only was it scattered, but you just, I just can't imagine. Yeah, well, it was fun. I mean, first of all, I said it was going to take me three years, and it took me 10. And I had an incredibly wonderful patient editor at Yale who, after seven deadlines, he finally said, you know, Margaret, come on. You know, we've, got to, <laughs> we've got to wrap this up. But it, 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 was, it was fun finding things that no one had knew existed. Most of the archives are at University of Austin at Texas, Harvard, Columbia, Yale, and then they're scattered. Morgan Library has one journal, and they're scattered around. 
Oh, gosh. But that was a fun, too. But initially, you did get photocopies of The every- first four years, yeah. I did get copy photocopies of what they knew existed. I ended up finding three or four jur- extra journals. Uh, and it took me a year just to transcribe them and put them in order. And once I did, I realized it was a remarkable, creative, and emotional journey of one of our great playwrights. And I also felt that there was nothing, there were no moral issues. There was nothing that he would have not wanted revealed, even though they were very personal. He wrote to himself about himself in a kind of shorthand. I later found a letter, and this was at the end of my uh, project, where he wrote, and it was written in 1962, I hope someday these journals will be published by their author with footnotes. And that, that gave me a great sense of, piece, I guess, that I was doing what Tennessee Williams wanted. Transcription is just is just part of the process of being an editor. Then you have to annotate and identify for folks what he said, or if he made a reference to uh, Cervantes or whatever. You've, sure. got, you've got to, I hate to say today, some readers, Cervantes, who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that in itself... You know, he made some rather uh, obscure allusions, and yet you tracked it all down. Yeah, that that was fun. One of the first things I did, I went to see everyone who was still alive that was a close friend of Tennessee Williams, because everyone has a story about Tennessee Williams, but the people that really knew him were really few. So the first person I went to see was Paul Bowles in Tangier. And my first question to him was one that, that stayed with me. There's a lot written about Tennessee Williams on the brink of madness. His sister was a paranoid schizophrenic who had a lobotomy. I didn't feel that reading all of his work. And my first question to Paul Bowles was, you know, what do you think of this comment that is often said about Tennessee Williams? And he shook his head and he said, he's the sanest person I've ever known. Look how much he wrote. And I really agreed with that because I don't think you can create the characters Williams wrote. And I think if they all walked in this studio, we'd know who they were. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's any playwright with the exception of Shakespeare who's written so many identifiable characters. I asked the same question to Gore Vidal, and he said the same thing. And then Donald Wyndham, uh, who's also another Southerner and and a very close friend, especially in the early years, they all confirmed this. So You know, those were some of the things I did. There are over 2,000 unpublished manuscripts. And, you know, in the journals, because he talked to himself about himself and what he's working on, he wouldn't identify. And he'd say, I have three manuscripts in the mail. But he wouldn't give the titles. So I had to figure out what those were, hence the database, using some of my Goldman Sachs (laughs) analytical (laughs) skills, of all these manuscripts, and then trying to put them in order. And and the way that the book was finally published, was that... Your decision, or was that the folks at Yale to have a photocopy of the original on the right hand page and then your annotation transcription on the left page? The transcription on the right in the, in the, yeah, in the images, yeah. yeah. No, that was mine. And in fact, one of the reasons I didn't see my editor um, for the first six years is I didn't want him to see what I was doing because it didn't look as neat and tidy as the book is now. And I was fearful that he would say, no, it's all got to go in the back. When I finally showed it to him, he loved it and he fought for it because at the very end, Yale was thinking about putting everything in the back. And I thought that, you know, he, he and I both understood the importance of having the answers to the questions on the left hand side of the page. But I designed the book, you know, and that took a lot of time. And you included illustrations? Yes. Photographs? Yeah. You mentioned the notes and the trend today in publishing. I know footnotes are at the end, They're as they, the end notes, but I grew up in graduate school and everything when footnotes were footnotes, which sometimes people said it will interrupt your reading. You don't have to go back. Well, if, if it's something other than a citation, if it's an explanatory footnote, I really would like to read it then, not so you find yourself constantly flipping back and, oh, well, darn, she just cited something that I know about. But then you've got these nuggets. But yours is all laid out. That's what makes it so beautiful. Oh, well, thank you. I also wanted to use as much of Tennessee Williams' voice in the annotation. I really try to keep myself out of that book because, 
again, his voice is so interesting. You know, he had so many different voices when he's writing personally to himself, and he could be very dramatic, and you can't always take him at face value. He would describe an event, and then he might uh, write to one of his close friends, or he might write to his mother or to his grandparents. So you've got very different versions of the same event. And I thought that was very helpful, just to hear the modulation. Well, in your discussing of using your analytical skills from, from Goldman Sachs, I just want to digress for a moment because you were an English major at Princeton, and yet you go to work for a major Wall Street firm. And you mentioned before we started recording that most of your peers were liberal arts majors, that they weren't hiring business majors. No, they, they weren't even hiring people who majored in economics. They were looking uh, for people who just had a broad range of, of curiosity and interest. And I think they felt, I don't think that's the case now, but back then, that, you know, a sense of hum- the humanities really informs us and I think makes us better people and we can better deal with other people. And there wasn't the emphasis on money at Goldman when, when I was working there. It was always about the client comes first. And you said that you had... Uh, when you were dealing with mergers that they were named after characters. Oh, yeah. Well, so that was a time in the 80s where you had these midnight raids on Friday you know, night, and another company would, you know, ra- would, would raid another company, and, and it could be finished in a matter of three or four days, and you'd have to find white knights to try and find another company to make a higher bid. So it was incredibly secretive, and we would have to immediately work all night to prepare these documents on the company that was being raided to send off to other companies so they could see if they wanted to get in in the action, if they wanted to make a bid. And so they all had code names. And so we would give them characters' names, whether it was from, you know, Henry James or Faulkner or, or Hemingway or, you know, I don't know, Richardson. But but you used individual names like Big Daddy or... Yeah, we like Isabel for Isabel Archer, Lambert for Lambert Strather, um, Ignatius Riley for, it would just be Ignatius for. Confederacy. Yeah, Dunces. When you're talking about writing, you're talking about taking over another company? Yes. Okay. So to explain for our listeners how that happened in that day. I don't know how, what the. Yeah. T- well, and I've forgotten all the, all the rules and how they probably have changed now, but. A company would make an offer for another company, mm-hmm. and it would be immediate, and they would have so much time to react. And you said it was like done on usually done on a Friday night. Or Friday afternoons, because then, you know, people were leaving. It, there weren't as many people working. The lawyers and the accountants might be harder to find. The bankers may have gone off for the weekend, so they were generally done. In fact, I worked, I think, 100 days straight um, in the height of this with no weekends off just because this is how frequent they were. And we would often, if, if not almost all the time, be defending the company that had gotten raided, that had the offer. So we would have to find other companies to, to get into the action to, to, to try and buy the company or help defend it. So you would have to prepare information packages to send out to these companies about the company that, that had the offer um, that was being, quote, attacked. And that just required a huge amount of work very quickly. I think it's just fascinating that the code names came from literature. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, you'd be spending all night, you know, working on something, and they would have these temps come in. And the temps were, you know, graduate students. I remember once it was a ballet dancer. I mean, these were you know, very motivated people. So you might have a discussion while the coffee machine was going with someone who was a graduate student in philosophy. So it was it was a fun time. Mm-hmm. And you left Goldman Sachs when you started a family? Yes, and, I did. And then you were in England. At yeah, I was working in England um, for Goldman Sachs. Okay. And I had our first child, and I thought I would go back to work. But I was working 14-hour days, and I underestimated how much, when I held my child, how much that would mean to me. So I chose not to. And while I was in, while I was working at Goldman, I was also doing book reviewing for the TLS, Time, the Times, Times, Literary, Times Literary Supplement. Yes. And then Tennessee Williams landed in, in your lap. Yeah. And, and it was just so interesting. I thought, why not? And I wasn't, when I first got them, I wasn't planning to edit them. I was, John Eastman just asked me what I thought of them. And then he asked me if I wanted to edit them. 
And I said, yes. And you spent the next 10 years of your life raising a family and decoding Tennessee Williams. Yeah, I did. It was a lovely, it was a lovely time. And so when did you come back to Charleston? Well, I don't live in Charleston now, but um, we bought a house in Charleston that was the Pineapple Gate House, which was in disrepair in the 90s, sort of mid-90s. And the reason we bought the house, living in London, raising children there, I really wanted them to have southern roots. I wanted We didn't have a home in, in the States. And they were going to British schools, and I just wanted them to have that sense of roots that I had grown up that was very meaningful to me. So this house was very beautiful. It was in need of a great deal of work, and it was up for in a bankruptcy proceeding, and we bought it. And then we restored it. The English schooling system, uh, they have a lot of breaks for long periods of time. So we would come back with our children during those breaks of a month and then during the summers when they were really little. Now, you grew up not far from the Pineapple Gate House. I did, just a few blocks away on the Battery. And you said in uh, an interview in one of the magazines, many, many, many <laughs> interviews that you did about how when you pass the gates, look into the yard, and there's this great expanse of lawn. Yes. Which a huge lawn in downtown Charleston is kind of unusual. And so when did you decide to find out what was really there? What sure. was the garden appropriate for this wonderful 18th century house? Sure. Well, first of all, just on that lawn, I've always loved that green lawn. And when we bought the house, I thought I'd put the green lawn back. It was, it, you know, it was, no one had tended the garden for a very long time. Because I thought with children, how wonderful, you know, because were, we were living in this, you know, in the middle of London. I can just lock the gate and let them be and have this sort of childhood, part of the childhood I had. I was working on Tennessee Williams at the time, too, and I met... We were restoring the house, really trying to take it back to its original condition. Again, this is part of my mindset of being, you know, a documentarian, I suppose. And I met this brilliant landscape historian, Alan Brown, and he told me what he thought would have been the garden. And it was very different from what was there. He felt there would have been a formal garden. That resonated some with me because having lived in Europe, when you had fine houses, they also had fine gardens that corresponded. And really in Charleston, that isn't the case. Also, having spent a lot of my time in archives, you know, I would go, my husband would take the children on vacation to see his parents in East Hampton, and I would head down to Texas for two to three weeks. So I knew the power of archives. So it was, you know, he was singing my song when he started telling me about this. But it was a daunting prospect because, one, it'd be very expensive. Two, we didn't know if we'd find anything. And then three, if we found something, what if we didn't like it and we'd spend all this money? Then you're sort of committed. So I thought about it. We thought about it. But it was just too enticing to not do this. So, you know, Henry James, Tennessee Williams, they're kind of the cause of our doing that garden. Okay, and you hired the right folks. Martha Zierdern at the Charleston Museum. At the Charleston Museum. And what you found about, was it two feet down? They did these, you know, it was a proper uh, site, archaeological site. They would dig three-foot trenches, sort of three-by-three-foot trenches. And about 18 inches down, they found oyster shells. And because Alan, it was sort of like the Wheel of Fortune. Alan knew what he was looking for. So he'd say, let's do 12 plots, and they'd sort of be scattered around. He'd get information, and with that information, he'd say, therefore, let's do seven more. And the the, uh, oyster shell path that is now there that's built up at grade level was what we found 18 inches below. Well, see, that's what's interesting is that the level of Charleston has... Yeah come up over the... <laughs> yeah, it needs to. It's six, <laughs> six feet above sea level now. Uh, so instead of this great expanse of lawn that you remember from your childhood and where you had hoped you could, as you say, lock the gates and your kids could play, they could have croquet, get the badminton, whatever they wanted, yeah. you've now got these three rooms, as gardeners say. Yes. How about describing those? Well, the first one is a rosary, and that's very formal. When what's interesting is that... that is in direct line with the main part of the house. So it just, it's perfect geometry. 
And that's also why we knew that we had found the gardens. Then the next garden is less formal. The two rooms are separated by a hexagonal tea house that we found the, our summer house that we found the foundation for. Okay. Uh, that has, you know, gardenias. It's, it's a little bit more. It has Lombardy popular. And then the next one would have been the fruit orchard. And we have orange trees. We have figs that are trellised, pomegranate. Mm-hmm. Alan was very careful only to put plants that he knew existed. And he went back through a lot of archives, through diaries and letters. They talked about the orange blossoms. They did pollen and spore analysis. We Mm -hmm. found lead plant labels of some of the flowers. Interestingly, there are no azaleas or camellias. Those came later to Charleston. Well, those come after the Revolution. Yeah. But, But you mentioned orange groves. They had commercially exported oranges from Charleston prior to the 1740s. We talk about changes in in climate, but they said they were as as good as the best Seville oranges. And then you had a series, in the early 1740s, you had a series of severe winters, and the orange is gone, at least in terms of, of commerce. Oh, that's interesting. Margaret, I need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Margaret Bradham Thornton, about her work on Tennessee Williams, her Charleston Garden, and we haven't even gotten to her latest work, which is a novel entitled simply Charleston. Anything more you want to tell about restoring the Pineapple Gate House? Because you mentioned it was in pretty bad shape when you got it. Well, one thing that I, I may mention, how some of that found its way into my novel. When I decided that I wanted to write a novel about Charleston, and I wanted it to be accurate because you can't really write about Charleston and make up street names. That was sort of the easy part. And then I had to think about who the characters would be. When we were storing the house, we went back to the original paint layer. On the third floor of the house, the Hayward family owned the house in the 1830s. They had built in the second dairy part of the house a third floor. And that's where all the children were. And so when we went to take the go back to the original paint layer because we wouldn't put the original colors back a painter called me up and said you've got to see this and on the door jam of their bedroom were all the names and heights of the children in the most beautiful hand as they wrote back then so I said oh no don't paint over that let's put a glass plaque or a lucite over it to preserve it which we thought we had but over time it's all disappeared People have told me that it was the arsenic in the paint that makes it disappear when exposed. It's not in sunlight, but to Mm -hmm. the air. But but I felt really guilty about that because I'm the one that found these children and I uncovered them, but my decision made them disappear. So when it came to naming one of the main characters, I named him after one of the children, Henry Hayward, as a way of sort of, you know, some sense Mm -hmm. of consolation. How about just giving our, our listeners an overview of the novel without giving away the denouement. Okay. Well, to me, it's a novel about the seduction of place and person. And it's a love story set in Charleston. Um, the two main characters are Charlestonians. Eliza Poinsett is an art historian living in London. And at a chance encounter in the English countryside, she meets, after 10 years, or sees again after 10 years, Henry Hayward, who's a newspaper man living in Charleston with a small son. Henry learns that Eliza's coming back to Charleston for a party of her stepsisters, and he makes her promise him that she will look him up. So it, the novel, second chapter begins with Eliza flying back. And this is where you goes back to your Tennessee Williams experiences of wanting to have that second chance. Of giving characters... Uh, a second chance with the stakes high on both sides, more for Eliza than for Henry, because Henry, one of the charms of Henry is that he loves her, and he didn't go find her, one, because he was the one that broke her heart, but two, he now has a small son, and he puts his son first, and that is very powerful to Eliza. She completely understands that and values that. You don't live in Charleston full-time. How much time do you spend there when the children are on their their breaks in London from schooling you you come back yeah we did when we lived in London we now we maybe 10 years ago moved back to the New York area 
but eventually settled in Florida. We have a lot of children, boys who play tennis. And uh, we were living out in the country in New Jersey, a beautiful spot. Uh, But it was, school was 18 miles away. You know, you had to travel sometimes six hours to find a tennis tournament. So we were spending a lot of time in Florida, ended up moving down there for now. But we come back some. We don't come back as much as we want to at this moment. But we've kept our house and, and hope to and plan to spend more time as our life gets a little bit simpler. Let's move on to Charleston, your novel. You use the landscape. You use art in your work. And you, that's very important to you. Art. Yes. I Well, I've always loved art. I'm not an art historian, but Eliza came from art. And she has a very odd sort of genesis. When I was living in London, I had some friends who were quite involved in the art world, and the British sensationalist, the Damien Hirst School, was very hot. And I didn't understand it. But, you know, I always like to read about things I don't understand because I try and understand them. And I remember that a woman artist named Tracy Emin was a finalist for the Turner Prize, which is the big prize at the Tate Museum in London. And it was this incredibly disgusting, dirty bed. And she won the—she was a finalist. She didn't win the prize, but she—I didn't understand that. And I would read the things that she wrote. And she's a very, she has a very creative mind. I think the way artists write about their work and how they think about it, like Jasper Johns, is fascinating and riveting. But she said something which stuck with me. She said that she found safety in art. And here is a woman who does this disgusting bed, writes about her, paints about her abortions and other bodily functions, and yet she finds safety in art. So I love the idea of someone feeling safe in art. So I had this woman who had had her heart broken and had always done the right thing and hadn't made bad decisions, but she went to art for safety. So that's really where Eliza began. And I think that Eliza does this. I think we all do this. In looking at a piece of art, we are making an inquiry into that art, but we're also finding out about ourselves. And I think she does it often in the book. And I think we do that. I mean, I think it's why I read books, why I read, you know, great works of art. It just expands your understanding of human nature. I think when you start with the book and you've got Eliza flying back to Charleston and you have her describe Charleston, and that's where you have really grabbed everybody You've hooked that that has hooked the folks who know Charleston and love Charleston. And it's almost a love poem to the city. Well, thank you for saying that. I you know, I've flown back and returned to Charleston many times, so I totally understand that feeling because that feeling of going home. This book was in many ways for me an exploration into something I never understood. When people would ask me, where is home? Even though I've lived in a lot of different places and I left Charleston when I was about 18, I always said Charleston and I never knew why I said that. And partly it was love of Charleston. But there's something about the concept of home never lets you go. And it doesn't have to be Charleston, it just has to be home. So I very much wanted to explore that notion You want to take a few minutes and read that passage where you describe Charleston? This is Eliza on the airplane, returning home. Eliza returned her gaze to the window. Thousands of feet below, roads that curved and faded without apparent reason snaked through large green untouched forest. Unlike the ordered rectangles and quadrilaterals and polygons of the English countryside, that fit together like irregular pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Everything here was sinuous, unordered, untamed. The only straight line she could see was the Southern Seaboard Railroad and the power lines that cut sharp tracks through large expanses of timber. Toward the coast, the solid forest gave way to winding rivers and irregular patches of marsh. Eliza guessed that the dark river that curled in lazy loops was the Ashley River, 
It reminded her of the white sugar icing her grandmother used to let her serpentine across the top of her lemon cakes. Eliza watched the plane shadow flee in front of them across land that disappeared into marshes. She enjoyed the weightless feeling of the shadow's swift escape, precisely because running away from something or someone had never felt so easy. As they approached Charleston, the waterways grew wider and the creeks and tributaries so numerous that it looked as if one big rainstorm would submerge the city. A local poet, long deceased, had referred to Charleston as a sea-drinking city. As they descended, Eliza could see all the houses lined up along the marshes with long, thin docks running to the deep water. She watched a motorboat make a tight circle to pick up a water skier. The afternoon heat had not left the day when Eliza's flight arrived in Charleston. She wrestled her bag off the luggage carousel and headed for the taxi rank. She paused for a moment to look at the palmetto trees outlined against the sky. Almost another three hours of daylight left, but the descending sun had already begun to pull the color out of the sky. The air was soft and heavy. It was as if someone had put an arm around her. On the way into town, Eliza sat back and let herself be soothed by the clunking of the tires of the sections of concrete, past the acres of factories and worn-out land, until the tip of the Cooper River Bridge appeared above the railing. Nothing had changed. The massive three-storied Faber Ward house, built in the 1830s and converted into a hotel for freed slaves during the Civil War, still stood haunted and empty, facing land that, for as long as Eliza could remember, was used by the Port Authority for stacking the containers of cargo ships. They continued on down East Bay Street past the slave market, which catered to the tourist trade, and crossed Broad Street. Soon the buildings on the east side gave way to a seawall and a promenade, and the name changed from East Bay to East Battery. There was something soothing about coming back to a place where there was nothing new to see, where everything was known, where there were only confirmations and never any questions. She knew that once she left the taxi, her journey would no longer feel free and effortless, like the shadow of the plane she had been watching. As they turned onto Church Street and bumped slowly over the uneven brick pavings, Eliza said, it's a pale stone-colored house on the left. The past was a kind of weather that pushed in from the harbor and lingered long. Eliza stood on the sidewalk and looked up at the tall three-story stucco house that had been in her father's family for six generations. In Charleston, houses were heritage and were only sold if they had to be. Okay. Very nice. I think I may have said it earlier, but isn't Charleston really your character? Is this the story of really of Eliza or is this the story of Charleston? Well, I think it's both. I mean, I, you know, I really started out, this this novel came from several different directions. The first one, I wanted to write about Charleston. I wanted to write about the world that I had known growing up. And in, in a way, it's an elegy to Charleston. It's about a world that I don't think exists anymore. And when I was growing up, it really functioned as a small town that was like an island. Uh, and growing up in Charleston in the 60s, 70s? Yeah, in the I was born in 19... I'm not shy about my age. I was born in 1959, so I grew up in the 60s in Charleston, 60s and 70s. Okay. Yeah. Well, Charleston in those days was a very different place. I can remember researching there as a graduate student at the Historical Society in the 60s, and you could walk two blocks over to State Street. It looked like Catfish Rowan from the 1930s. It had not. It was still America's best kept secret. It's so interesting you say that. I was looking at a book of photographs, looking for a, a cover for the book, and I thought, oh, this is how I remember Charleston. I love it. You know, there weren't any cars, there were no people. And then I looked at when the photographs were shot, and it was in the 30s. So, yeah. But that was a very different Charleston. Yeah, and I remember playing in our garden and hearing a bicycle coming, the clank of a bicycle chain, and you knew that was probably a friend coming to see you. That's how quiet it was. Well, it's not quiet today. I know, I know. It really isn't. 
tourism is a double-edged sword, but Charleston is handled probably better than, than most cities. I think New Orleans, for example, which hasn't handled it very well at all. But you live in Charleston, but the privacy that you had as a child, I have friends who used to have houses down in the old part, and they'd say, you'd wake up and somebody had just opened the gate and decided to come into your, your yard. Some tourist assuming that oh. even the, the gate might be shut, they just wandered in. And yeah, it's the noise that bothers me, the congestion and the noise that bothers me now. I also think there's still a lot of cliches about Southerners. And I think having lived away, my homesickness whenever there's anything to read or watch, and I was always disappointed. Uh, that's one of my soapboxes that I... Oh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, I mean, great. The, 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 stereo, the stereotypes yeah. of, of Southerners that come from people who are supposedly learned. One of the favorite incidents that I, re I remember from being at the university was we were interviewing someone to bring them in from Missouri. And I was chair of the search committee. And the candidate actually said, my wife wants to know, does she need to bring mosquito netting? And I said, well, we'll make sure we have elephant guns when you get off the plane. And uh, they have his and hers outhouses. <laughs> I mean, it was, I mean, here's somebody who was well-educated yeah, yeah. and not living, he would live in a state that some people would consider semi-Southern and was- Mark Twain did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was the image. I mean, uh, whether it's the Dukes of Hazard, whether it's a certain TV show that's going on about- yeah. Charleston now. Yeah. The Southern stereotypes. Yeah, and I think Southern women really get a bad rap. I think they are, you know, portrayed as not that smart, very concerned with dress, their home, and semi-hysterical. And I think there are a lot of strong Southern women, and I wanted to write about that because I think, you know, the whole history of the South is filled with strong Southern women. Did you have a particular strategy in mind when you created the character Eliza, that you wanted to make sure she was not Scarlet or Melanie? Or yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted, in a funny sort of way, she's probably my reaction, uh, having worked 10 years on Tennessee Williams. Uh, I knew I wanted a strong Southern woman, beca woman because that is my experience of people I knew in the South. So I wanted to get it right for the women of the South. Uh, but working on Tennessee Williams, you know, his women are really trapped in the South. They really, and they all wait for men to rescue them, pretty much. That was then. You know, that was in the 40s, in the 50s. But now women in the South have lots of opportunities. And I wanted to write about the Southern woman as I think, you know, I think that's who we should be talking about, not the stereotypes. Stella. Blanche. Uh, sister woman who's... <laughs> Maggie. Ma Maggie. Uh, Maggie the cat, who's one of my, my favorites. Laura. Yeah. I guess, Elsa, I don't think sister woman could ever be described as strong. No, but, but do you think they're strong? Well, I think, I think Maggie's strong. I do, too. No, yeah. I, th I think Maggie's very strong. But she, ha she waits for a man. That's a thing. She's, she, that's the 50s, you know. Yeah. I do think she's strong, yeah. and I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think Amanda Boone feels strong, the mother. I've always oh. liked her. Oh. Yeah, She's just trying to do the right thing, as did Tennessee Williams' mother, for her s children. It may not, she may have not made the right decisions, but I admired her in that play. Your Eliza would be very much at home in Henry James, New York, don't you think? I do. I do think she and, would. And, 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 and I mean, I'm, I'm not just, I, I really do. I mean, she's, she really is a different kind of Southern woman. She's not fanning herself. She's no. Not, she's, um, she works. She goes, she has a career. She, that, yeah. You know, I also wanted to write, with Tennessee Williams, he wrote about longing, but it was one-sided longing. It was about women who want men who don't want them. You know, Laura waits for gentlemen callers. Blanche waits on the plantation to be rescued, and then that doesn't work out. She tries to seduce Mitch with low lighting. And Maggie, our favorite character, says about Brick that 
if she thought he was never going to make love to her again, she would go in the kitchen, get the sharpest knife, and stick it straight through her heart. So these aren't love stories at all. There's only one play of Williams where there is a possibility, and that's in Summer and Smoke. And Williams wrote a lot of different variations. And I, in all the research I did, I always kept hoping that I would find a draft where the two get together, um, Alma and John in Summer and Smoke. But in Summer and Smoke, John says to Alma, it's been three or four times that we've come face to face, and each of those times we seem to be looking for something without knowing what it is we wanted to find. And I thought that was such a tragic line. So I wanted to start with a book where I gave two characters a chance for a second chance and say, what would you be willing to risk for that? You know, because John and Alma, he's saying it's about timing. You know, we were we were looking for something when the other one wasn't looking for it. So I wanted to give a woman a chance to have to wrestle with that. What are you what is she willing to risk for that? And she had a charming English boyfriend, a great career in London, but she really loved Henry. And she you know, he has his child, and that makes her love him even more because she sees what a great father he's been. And I think, you know, Henry's really a tribute to real Southern men. I mean, I think there are also a lot of stereotypes about Southern men. Oh, well, And there's yeah. a lot of substance in Henry. There are flaws, too. Yes. I mean, the, the stereotypes abound. The bully Southern sheriff. Gun-toting. Are <laughs> uh, <laughs> they Rhett Butler's, you know. The cads. Good-looking the, the, cads, the, yeah. The, the, the cads are the Ashley Wilkes, who's just sort of the the rich, incompetent, charming but weak. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and they're all they're always overplayed. If they were if they were staged, you would say they were chewing the rug. I mean, it's yeah. you know, oh, and the mother's boy. I think Ashley Wilkes is sort of a mother's boy. Yeah, yeah. M- mother's not present, but I mean, he's. We have those on that show we refer to. <laughs> They're all represented. <laughs> so you don't have those. They're not set in Kansas. I mean, having done regional studies for years, yes, there are people who studied New England and they studied the Great West, but the South, Europeans, as you know, love the South mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I mean, they, they do. They. I had a German scholar friend at Bond say, well, you people are interesting and weird. <laughs> uh, uh, particularly the fiction, and they they they, they love Faulkner, uh, oh, they love Tennessee great. Williams, yeah. and they keep up with contemporary Southern writers far better than most folks in this country do. But Kansas, Illinois, the great Midwest—I mean, who's other than Willa Cather? Who do you want? <laughs> yeah, you know, I've thought about that a lot. Like, what is a Southern? What is Southern fiction? And I don't think I really have an answer to it, but one thing that really struck home when I spoke to my editor at Yale, who left Yale to run a foundation called the Evo Foundation for all these artifacts of the Lithuanian Jews that the Nazis tried to destroy. And I went to a speech he gave, and he said, you know, because they they were even, the Nazis were even burning, like, geometry notebooks of little boys, you know, that their school books. And he said... The reason the Nazis wanted to do it is because no one can know who they are if you don't know your past. And I think Southerners, you know, really do know their past because there hasn't been that much movement. And there's also a great line from Marquez in Hundred Years of Solitude where he says, a person doesn't belong to a place until they have someone buried in the ground. And for a multi-generational Southerner, you know, we have the opposite problem. You know, you, you sort of can't escape it. But I think there's a lot about knowing who you are and just it's being a very, it's a complicated group of people. Oh, no question about that. Yeah. And you talk about folks in the ground. Since the 1970s, one of the most interesting demographics about the Southern population has been the return of African Americans to the South, and in many cases to the town, the little towns in which there was family. Right. Home. It's home. Yeah. And that usually confounds a lot of a lot of folks. It's not the generation who left, but it's usually the next generation, right. sometimes the, the third generation. But they've never given up that connection to place. Yeah. Which is strong and powerful. It's, it's, very, it's very strong and powerful. 
What part of Margaret Bradham is in the character of Eliza? Yeah, there's not much. In fact, people would be... uh, She started out very differently. She had an English boyfriend, and she was much more fragile, I think. I'd say I admired Eliza, and as I... She changed a lot because people would give me comments. So I wrote a woman I admire. Um, You know, I would like to be like Eliza, I suppose, but... Well, I I was just thinking about your career from Charleston to Princeton to London, Tennessee Williams. Well, you know, I there's certain... When you spend 10 years on a project that was meant to take three, you're then in a little bit, you know, impatient to get on with what you really want to do. And while I was working on Tennessee Williams, I published some short stories. And I had started this novel, but there's such different ways of thinking, the creative and the analytical, that I had to finally, as I was missing all these deadlines, put the novel down. So it was easy for me to pick up some things in my experience to give to Eliza, just because that saved me from uh, doing some research. All right. Well, what's next? Well, I'm working. I have a bad first draft of another novel. Uh, it's set in Europe, and it's as w- for me, novels are about asking questions and trying to answer them. And so I'm working on that. Um, and we'll see. When I worked on Tennessee Williams, I learned it was sort of my apprenticeship. And one of the most important things I learned was it's okay to write a bad first draft. And he certainly did. So, <laughs> All right. Well, Margaret, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Well, I wondered if you wanted me just to mention about the things I learned from Tennessee Williams as yes. in creative writing. That might pe- yeah. that's resonated a lot with yeah. people. Okay. Yes. When I um, the I learned a lot about creative writing from Tennessee Williams because the journals were really a creative record of how he taught himself how to uh, write. The three most important things I learned uh, was one: it's okay to write a bad first draft. The Glass Menagerie, which is my favorite play, in which took eight years. Uh, and seemed seamless. It took him eight years, and he tried it in three different forms. He even tried it as a version of a film treatment that was inspired by Gone with the Wind, if you can believe that. Mm -hmm. The second thing I learned was he always chose character over story. And Arthur Miller, in talking about and praising Williams a number of years later, said that his, his genius was in in choosing sheer sensibility as a driving force of dramatic structure. So it's about the emotions that determines the form of the book. It's not about plot. And I I read those kind of novels. I don't really read novels with a lot of plot, generally speaking. I like the novels of sensibility. The third and most important thing, and it took him about 13 years to learn this, he wrote in his journals when he was 29, having committed himself to writing when he was 16, not getting a lot uh, accepted, a lot of rejections, not hardly any success in his 20s. But he said, I'm going to write a picture of my own heart. And by that, he did not mean confessional writing, but he meant the emotions and ideas that moved him. And that's when he started really working on The Glass Menagerie, which is sort of based on his sister. So that was very powerful to me to, to understand that you could write about the ideas and the questions that interested you. Well, and there are some reviewers who have said on Charleston, strong character, but plot question mark. Yeah, I just don't think plot, I mean, to me... No, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That, that's one of the things you you really learned, and in, in Charleston, that's the case. Yeah, but sometimes that's a criticism of it. Well, but, I, well, I, I, but it's an accurate description, and I'm happy with what, you know, well, it's what I wanted to do. Well, that's what, that's what you wanted to do. There are those who love it, and there are some who like to have everything tied up in a neat bow at the end. And Well, I think we all read for different, you know, sometimes we read to learn about life, about humanity. Sometimes we read for just entertainment, as an escape. And I think that that's where a plot is fun, when you just, you know, want to go on a fast car ride or a bank robbery or something. So. Hey, that's what beach books are for. Yeah, right. <laughs> You know, I'm just, I'm so in love with language that I can't even read them, even though I want to be able to sit on the beach and read. I just, I have to have beautiful words. Okay. Margaret Bradham Thornton, 
most recent work is Charleston. I want to thank you for being with us today on The Journal. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Charleston native Margaret Bradham Thornton has had a fascinating career. She left Charleston at 18, went off to Princeton, then Wall Street, then London, and over the course of time edited Tennessee Williams Notebooks, a 10-year project which won rave reviews in literary circles on both sides of the Atlantic. And she most recently has written her novel, Charleston. The influence of her childhood, her work on Tennessee Williams, are very much revealed in this novel. And the question is, is it really a story about Henry and Eliza, or is it a story about the city, Charleston? This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.